This Sunday on Capital Connection, Speaker Welch won't catch up to Speaker Madigan's longest tenured run in that office, why he set term limits on himself and the Republican leader. This is historic what we're doing today. Term limits on the Speaker of the House and the Minority Leader. Plus, the next time the House meets, it won't be in the State House, but online, perhaps on Zoom. What took the House so long to catch up with the Senate? Change does not happen overnight. It's a process. We can debate and vote on bills uh, remotely during this pandemic. Plus, a flurry of new bills, new committee assignments, and the legislature back in session, if you will, even if it's virtual. Plus, a sneak peek of what's to come in Governor Pritzker's virtual, remote state of the state and budget address next Wednesday. House Democrat Ann Williams and House Republican Mike Marin join us. It's all coming up on Capital Connection. From the Illinois State Capitol Rotunda, Capitol Bureau Chief Mark Maxwell is asking the tough questions. This is Capital Connection. Welcome to Capital Connection. I'm Mark Maxwell reporting from the Illinois State House on this Sunday, February 14. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Former House Speaker Michael Madigan's record run as the longest tenured speaker in Illinois history is safe for now. His successor, new Speaker Chris Welch, voted to approve rules this Wednesday that would cap a speaker's term to just 10 years. Five consecutive two-year terms is the max any speaker or minority leader can serve in Illinois moving forward as long as these rules are in place. I think the biggest thing is, is we've now put term limits on the speaker and the minority leader of five general assemblies or 10 years. I think the biggest change uh, that people will notice is that there's actually term limits for the speaker and the majority leader or the minority leader. When it's in rules, uh, it's easy easier to get around it than it is if it's in statute or really if it's in the Constitution. But I think the best avenue for us to go down right now would be to pass legislation that would put it in statute to have it affect um, both the House and the Senate to have it um, as a law instead of in the rules. The new rules also bring the House up to speed with the Senate and allow members to go online to do their work like so many Americans have done during this pandemic. Starting immediately, House committees can hold hearings online and can advance legislation to the full House as if they were there at the committee in person, all of it done remotely, that allowing lawmakers to keep their distance while they keep up with their work. It's allowing us to get back to work, having remote committee meetings, committee votes. This is something we should have been doing last year. We're getting back to work. There's a lot of important things that need to be done to help the community, help the state. And we're going to get to work and do it. So we have a very precarious budget situation. We've got things we got to deal with um, as far as COVID is concerned. And so just getting back to the work of the people, it's exciting to me. If it's remote, it's remote. Uh, if it's in person, it's in person, but we've got to get it done. In other words, the legislature is back, and many members hope that the State House can reassert itself as an equal branch of government, the legislative with the executive. For example, one of the hearings we might start to hear more of from Democrats and Republicans alike, complaints about backlogs at the Department of Employment Security, where so many claims for jobless benefits have gone unheard and ignored. None of us are happy with what's going on. Um, a majority of my time, even when I was able to take a break fr from here because of COVID, I was going to work on heavy bills that I, was, I have in mind. But none of that could happen because I was so focused on IDES and was unable to get an answer. And that made me as a legislator feel some type of way. 
So now that we're back to work, we can have uh, subject matter so he could tell us, everyone, what's going on, going on and why aren't why are people getting their checks when they need to. Also, the state house can get to work trying to balance the budget. One Democrat did not agree necessarily with all of Governor Pritzker's ideas that he laid out in a sneak peek of his budget address that is still to come this Wednesday. That speech will be delivered virtually. Governor Pritzker in his office telling us this week there will be no new taxes in his plan, but will the state house have other ideas? That's unfortunate um, that the governor's budget doesn't prioritize education probably in the way it should to make sure that we are putting new money into the education formula. We need to put new dollars into the formula, not just flat funded. So some of our decisions as a legislature will be what we think the priorities are budget wise, regardless of what the governor has said in terms of what he wants to do. We have some ability to do that as well. And if we're able to figure out how to put new dollars into the school funding formula, then I dare the governor to veto that money out and bring us back to flat funding. Whether it was jobless benefits, executive power, education funding or any other number of disagreements, you name it, the executive and legislative branches have a lot of points of contention or disagreement in recent days, and we very well may see some of those debates emerging in this new year with a new cast of members in the state house. Governor Pritzker on thin ice with the legislature these days, reluctant to force them back to a joint session to listen to his state of the state address and offering them an olive branch, granting the request from several members to allow them to move up in the line to get their vaccine. The governor says he'll wait his turn, but on Wednesday, when the House returned to session, many of those members got to go to a special secure location, a private pop-up clinic set up just for them, where they could go get their first doses of the vaccine after the governor moved them up in the line. If you qualify, you should get the vaccine, and if you don't, you don't. And that's what I'm following. That includes Lonnie, that includes you. That includes me. Did you get your vaccine already? I think that's a hippie thing that I shouldn't talk about because I don't want to put other legislators on the spot. But I can tell you this, that I'm following the law. And, and what's the argument for that, for lawmakers getting the vaccination? Um, I think that the argument for it is so that we can come in here and do the people's work. You mentioned vaccination. Yeah. Have you been vaccinated yet? Uh, working on it. Today? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, well, I actually would rather not bring that up. <laughs> well, maybe you might rather not, but there are people that are asking, yeah. should lawmakers jump into this phase 1B? I hear you. Uh, well, yeah, what's the, the argument for it? Well, for almost a year, we were not here. And a lot of things were either put on the, on the back burner or rushed through during lame duck. And it made everyone mad, the things that were rushed through during lame duck. And so now we're telling people, hey, we've been working on this since the summer, but we never came back to Springfield to work. So uh, making sure that legislators are vaccinated, it helps us to get back to work for the people in Illinois. So while some people feel that we shouldn't be given any particular treatment or preferential treatment, if you will, but this is the operations of the state. Hopefully we get to the point where we're prioritizing teachers so we can get them back into the classrooms. But if this is, you know, the operations of the state of Illinois, then this is a group that probably should have some ability to get a vaccine in an appropriate group so that we can come back to work and work on behalf of the people of the state of Illinois. House Republican Mike Marin joins us later, but when we come back first, House Democrat Ann Williams, the sponsor of the Clean Energy Jobs Act. What would it mean for nuclear energy, for gas, for oil, for the economy? All those questions coming up. You're watching Capital Connection. 
from the Illinois State Capitol. Governor Pritzker enters his third year without much to deliver to the environmental lobby. He made big promises in his inaugural address and in his state of the state address last year said it, the days of utility companies writing energy legislation are over. Earlier this week, a number of supporters of a Clean Energy Jobs Act that would prop up wind and solar energy uh, rolled out their new plans, a 906-page bill they proposed, saying this would bring about a clean energy, renewable energy by 2050 in Illinois. President Biden has issued executive uh, orders and readied federal legislation to address the climate crisis. But he can't reach his climate goals without state action. Here in Illinois, CJ will deliver much needed green jobs to the communities that need them most, will put us on a track to 100% renewable energy, and will make communities like Chicago and others across the state cleaner and safer places to live for everyone, not just a privileged few. We can't afford to let the common bribery scandal and corrupt politics stand in the way of passing clean energy legislation. Joining us now is House Democrat Ann Williams, who is sponsoring the Clean Energy Jobs Act and just rolled it out this week. Uh, third time the charm? I'm hopeful that this is the year we're going to get it done. Yeah, it was interesting to see uh, Governor Pritzker made some big promises to the environmental lobby to, uh, to climate change, to tackle that. In his inaugural address, he specifically singled out uh, the utility companies in last year's State of the State address and said no longer will they write energy policy. So how do you do that? How do you actually write policy that sets the roadmap, the rules of the road for an entire industry without having their input? Well, I think what we're talking about is really letting the environmental community and the grassroots and the communities of Illinois lead the conversation. The point of the energy policy discussion really is to get the best deal for consumers while ensuring efficient, reliable energy procurement. So I think we can do that if we lead the way in the conversation. Certainly the utilities and the providers of our power are going to be a part of the conversation, but they're not going to be driving the bus the way they used to. And that would be a 180 from the future Energy Jobs Act. I want to point out, uh, b because as many in our audience know, uh, the ongoing federal investigation uh, into that, uh, that and other energy legislation like it allowed utility companies to charge their electric customers higher on their electric bills. And it gave those utility companies more bailout money, essentially, or more funding uh, to prop them up. That was now labeled in a deferred prosecution agreement as part of a corrupt deal. Um, I, I saw something that stuck out to me in the Clean Energy Jobs Act, 906 pages of light reading there. But it basically said that ComEd is going to be under another investigation, if this bill passes, by the Commerce Commission. A state agency which is supposed to regulate utility companies is going to open a new investigation and at the close of it could deliver a refund, not just to the state of Illinois for that bailout money, but also to the customers of ComEd and Exelon. Is that right? Yes, the new version of the Clean Energy Jobs Act has a number of provisions related to utility accountability. We need to make sure that the utilities are held accountable for the actions that they take and also for the actions that were taken over the past several years. So the bill does a few things in that area. First of all, it would stop the automatic rate hikes that have been baked into Illinois for years. 
basically that provided that no matter what the issue was, the utilities would automatically receive rate hikes at the expense of consumers without having to thoroughly prove that. We're changing that in the new version of CJA. Secondly, the point that you referenced, uh, the ICC would be empowered to review what happened with ComEd specifically and determine what amount of the proceeds that were making based on these ill-gotten gains should be returned to consumers and ratepayers. So we are providing for a form of restitution does for Commerce, consumers. Does the Commerce Commission have that power already? We're enabling that in the legislation. They certainly have the power to oversee rate, set rates, set regulations, uh, and in any number of areas pertaining to utilities. But this specifically deals with restitution for prior bad acts. Okay, so, and, and I believe that the U.S. Attorney's Office set that overall price tag at about $200 million, or $150 to $200 million of the bottom line impact to comment on Exelon. I don't know exactly how the ICC would split that up between the state and ratepayers. Perhaps a refund check on the way. Uh, but I, I do have a question about, so it, it seems fair and just that if that was a corrupt deal that cost the state and cost consumers, that they would get some restitution. That seems fair and just. My question is, I, I've never seen something like that written into law. When that happens in other cases, the Attorney General's office takes them to court and sues them in a court Ha, they, they have a settlement agreement, or that's the method here. Is the Attorney General's office not, f are you filling the void here? Is the Attorney General's office not willing to take ComEd to court? You know, I don't know. I haven't spoken with the Attorney General about that. I know he's been very focused on accountability for utilities, as was the prior AG. That's a big part of their role. But this, we specifically wanted to address what has been admitted in the federal agreement to have been problematic uh, behavior that was illegal. ComEd admitted to this behavior, and we as legislators, we want to hold them accountable, and we wanted to find the easiest mechanism to do so and make sure that ratepayers got their money back. Is nuclear energy clean energy? Technically, nuclear energy is considered clean energy. It is not considered renewable energy. So in the Clean Energy Jobs Act, we kind of phase in uh, over the years to get to 100% renewable energy by 2050. Our first goal is to eliminate the most damaging um, pollutant, which is carbon emissions from a coal-fired plant and from some, obviously, transportation. Um, that's our first goal. Then we want to move to, eventually, to 100% renewables. So it's a yeah, stepped-up process. Next, and then nuclear at some point. Yeah, carbon-emitting coal plants would be first. And, and those, you know, to Mark, they are the most expensive to run. Um, they are very difficult to provide for clean power. And market forces are closing coal plants throughout Illinois at a much higher rate than anyone anticipated. There is certainly some of that. The economy, there are, there's the jobs consideration, there's the climate uh, issue, and, and certainly those are all uh, interested. They're uh, interesting, rather. They're connected. Um, there's something in the, you, you mentioned market forces, but certainly the market is also taking into consideration how state law and federal law pressures those markets in certain ways. One example, uh, the nuclear power plants would be subject to a new tax under their local government. This law would allow local governments to go to nuclear power plants and tax them up to 25% of their entire property tax levy, basically could be shifted onto the backs of the nuclear power plants. Uh, wouldn't that hasten their closure? Well, obviously, the primary goal of any uh, energy bill is to make sure that consumers get reliable energy efficiently and at an affordable cost. So that's at the very basic, uh, at the very basis of 
the Clean Energy Jobs Act. So we are not going to, or we are not going to encourage anyone to do anything that's going to remove those uh, items for um, consumers. We can't have energy unaffordable, especially at a time like now. Um, we need to make sure that we can provide the clean, efficient energy at a price that's affordable. But while we're doing so, we want to do address the multiple crisis that Illinois is facing regarding COVID and the recovery that we need to see in terms of jobs. Um, obviously, the climate crisis is at the forefront. And then, of course, finally putting behind us the issue of corruption when it comes to energy policy. Yeah, that's, that's interesting indeed. What, what's in it for wind and solar? In the Clean Energy Jobs Act, uh, what, what's in it for those industries? One of the big pieces of the bill is to transfer how we handle capacity. So we pay for power, is how, turning the lights on and off, but we also pay for capacity, which is kind of an insurance policy to make sure that you have energy on the very hottest days and the very coldest days. Right now, Illinois relies on a regional market called the PJM in Northern Illinois. And we spend about $1.8 billion a year to pay for coal-fired carbon-emitting energy just in case. So what we're proposing to do in CJA is to provide for markets in Illinois only that would allow us to decide where we get those energy capacity uh, resources from. And we would have it from wind and solar and other renewable sources. We would prioritize clean energy rather than paying all this money, millions, billions even, to pay for dirty power that we never use. One of the interesting things in this whole discussion is that uh, wind and solar and their ability to kind of feed the long-term sustainability of the electric grid is, is really just innovation. Uh, battery storage power, that once you have a battery that can s store that and renewable energy for a long period of time, then just by law of, 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 uh, of, of the industry itself, you wouldn't need to rely on those other types of uh, energy that you can go burn and create right now. Um, so so that's, it's interesting to see how that fits in, the innovation fits into this timeline of 2050. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly an optimistic timeline, but we've seen what science can do in so many areas lately. And we, it really is a matter of where there's a will, there's a way. We have seen other states, and they're not progressive states, like New Jersey, for example, do really amazing things. Even Texas has come to rely more and more on renewable sources because they're cheaper, they're cleaner, and it's just the direction we're going. So Illinois can do it, I'm confident. We just need to put aside the policies of the past, the, the means of getting to yes that we've relied on before, and really look at things innovatively and put people first rather than profits for companies. Yeah. When, when you look at the jobs picture, because the, the word jobs is right there in the bill, uh, a lot of the jobs that would be created, wouldn't they be temporary? Installing a wind farm takes a year or two to get it done. Certainly there are a lot of jobs, skilled trade jobs that would come as part of the development. But there are a lot of jobs that uh, come with the green economy that we haven't even contemplated yet. For example, um, not just, it's not just wind and solar, but the energy efficiency market is huge. Even two years ago or three years ago when we passed the Future Energy Job Tax, which did have its issues certainly, um, there were some things in that bill that were very positive for the industry. For example, after that bill was passed, Illinois became the second highest um, job market for solar jobs in the whole country. So it does show that when you craft the right policies legislatively, you can see real results. And we're really focusing our jobs efforts 
in the Clean Energy Jobs Act in the communities that are most in need. The communities in the inner city, for example, that have been disproportionately plagued by pollution, the coal plants located in residential areas, uh, those are the places we're going to focus first in terms of job training and opportunities for uh, businesses owned by people of color and, and really a focus on underserved communities, but also downstate to these coal towns where a coal you know, plant closes and the town is left in a lurch. People lose good paying jobs. There's no economic resources there where property tax revenue came into play. So those are the areas we're focusing on right now, the areas most in need in terms of jobs. Certainly, and I don't think any serious person would look at uh, something that pollutes versus something that doesn't and would say one is healthier than the other. Uh, uh, obviously, pollution uh, is not as healthy for people that are breathing that air. Um, that's clear. But the, the question being, you know, on, a, on an oil rig, you've got people working on it uh, daily. Uh, on a coal mine, you've got people working there daily. Once the wind farm goes up, those jobs would migrate to the next place where you're constructing something, building something, right? And wouldn't there just be fewer people doing that work by 2050, once all those wind farms are up, all those solar panels are installed. In the net, when you, look, when you look at the big picture of it, do you feel confident that this will in fact be a net positive in job growth? I do think it will be. Again, you've mentioned innovation. We have manufacturing. We have um, those innovative engineering jobs. We have uh, sales jobs. We have, um, the as the industry grows, the opportunities are not just for the big wind farms and the solar farms that you see, but they're for residential solar. They're for solar for all, community solar programs, for example. Energy efficiency is something we could be installing and reviewing right here in the Capitol Complex. And those are jobs that require not just installation, but maintenance and, and repair and everything else. So I do feel, you know, the coal plants, um, they, my family actually is, comes from a coal mining family in Pennsylvania decades ago. Um, everybody died young from black lung, but um, eventually the coal plants closed and the town really suffered. So that's kind of the natural trajectory, whether we like it or not. So we need to find ways to replace those jobs. And this is a definitely a, a start and definitely a, um, a way to really make a difference in those communities. Very interesting. I saw in your uh, press release as you were introducing, reintroducing this bill that you sort of uh, uh, congratulated or applauded the new speaker, Chris Welch, uh, for uh, being friendly to this legislation. Uh, the bill itself, spells out the deferred prosecution agreement. I think we can safely presume Speaker Madigan might not have voted for this bill in this form. You, you seem confident that Speaker Welch is behind this bill? He, he's pushing it? Well, uh, Speaker Welch has long been a champion of clean energy. He's been an advocate for environmental issues throughout his career. We've worked together on many of these throughout the years. Um, of course, he's the speaker now and he has to make sure the bill um, is the best it can be. But I do expect that he will be a champion and as we go along, he'll be a big part of these conversations. Perhaps many changes still to come on this clean energy debate before a bill becomes law. Before we let you go, I know it was a whirlwind, but many in our audience will remember that you ran for speaker uh, back during the lame duck session when all of this was happening. Uh, what did you learn during that process? And tell us something that maybe we don't know. Uh, there, there was a lot of conversations. You were working the phones from the floor. Jay Hoffman was involved. You were involved. There were other people. I, I mean, we're just sort of watching all the conversations. What was that like as you were building a lot of support there? There was that first round of votes. You did better than anybody else other than Speaker Madigan, and then Speaker Welch got the gig. How did it all happen? 
Well, it was a fascinating process. And honestly, my motivation was really about bringing what I felt was much needed change to the Illinois House. And um, opening the process up to uh, other candidates was really important to me. Um, it became really a conversation with colleagues about the, what they wanted to see in the House and how they wanted to make the process more democratic. And I was happy to see the election of Chris Welch. I supported him and withdrew my candidacy so I could support him on the first round that he ran for because I do believe that he has not just the skills and qualities to be a great leader, but he's right on the issues and Sija's right at the heart of that. And his commitment to uh, women's reproductive health care, uh, to equality for all Illinois residents, and his uh, belief in environment being at the foundation of, uh, for all of us in terms of priorities, I think will really uh, serve the people of Illinois well. All right, Representative Ann Williams, thank you for joining us. We're back in just a moment. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. House Republican Mike Marin joins us now. Good to have you back in the building. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Mark. It's good to be back in this building. Uh, the, the House rules have been adopted. There's a new speaker. And is there any sign from your perspective that these rules uh, will open up the process to allow for more bipartisan exchange, more debate? Uh, Democrats say they have allowed every bill to get through rules to a committee. This is closer to a bipartisan democratic process than we've had before. Is that a fair statement? Well, there's been a lot of talk today, people talking about how this is the first step, and I hope that's the, the truth. And we've seen some small improvements, but I think that the problem is uh, that these set of rules, much like uh, rules for the previous General Assemblies, still consolidate a lot of power with the Speaker's office and the people that he appoints to run uh, committees, the committee chairman. And so while uh, a bill might go to a committee instead of being tied up in rules, there's no guarantee that that bill will actually get called or get heard or that we'll get an up or down vote on those bills. So those are some of the problems that I see uh, with the proposed rules. Uh, there's a lot of talk. Hopefully some positive changes come uh, going forward. Uh, they say that this is a first step. Hopefully that's the truth. Oh, they are the speaker's rules. This is how uh, you know, the, the governing, the party in power, they have the votes. They can put the rules in place they want. So I, I suppose in some sense, Republicans' uh, life in the super minority, they're, they're used to these fight over the rules and, and frustrated with a process that where really it all boils down to you just don't have the votes. So I, I want to get into what we can do in Springfield in a moment. Before I do, what, what was your reaction to uh, the appointment, the, the election of new Illinois Republican Party Chairman Don Tracy? And what direction can the Illinois Republican Party go if it hopes to expand its power in Springfield in the next election? Well, I, I think uh, from what I know about Mr. Tracy, it was a positive and uh, I, I'm hopeful. You know, uh, he, he addressed our caucus last night. Uh, we had a caucus meeting and, and had a lot of good things to say. So going forward, I, I really uh, hope that uh, we take a, a Big Ten approach. Uh, that's the only way uh, to win, right? I mean, uh, politics is a game of addition. And so, you know, we really need to focus on reforms, uh, focus on changing uh, how government does business in Illinois, and try to bring in as many people as we can to the party so that we can uh, be competitive to be the majority, so we, we can have a, a greater say and maybe one day we'll be uh, writing the rules and having uh, the votes. 
very interesting. We were talking about the rules. Some people tuning into a program to, to watch what Springfield state government is doing uh, might wonder, why should I care? So I guess the pro it's all about the process, but, but really the process only matters as far as uh, you can get something done through it, right? What are some of those things you're hoping to get done this session? Uh, what's high on your agenda? What, what are you aiming for? A lot of uh, my agenda is focused primarily on things that will help uh, the citizens back in my district. I have some uh, economic uh, uh, issues that, uh, some economic development issues that I'm uh, trying to push for some of the communities in my district. Uh, for example, there's a, a plot of land uh, on the south side of Danville in the community of Tilton that's prime development. Uh, that area is really taken off. There's a lot of potential in a really core uh, part of my district that's really important. And uh, IDOT owns the land, and so we're trying to get uh, all the, the it actually requires a legislative fix to uh, get the land transferred to uh, the village, even though IDOT doesn't need the land anymore. So, uh, but it, it is critical for economic development. I've got some things um, working on a, uh, an initiative uh, to help suicide prevention uh, for the Illinois Education Association. Uh, some things that are very important to the people in my district, but uh, all in all, they're not controversial. And so, you know, going back to the rules, uh, you know, it's important that those initiatives get a hearing, that we get a, uh, an up or down vote on that. Uh, because a lot of times in the past, you felt like you had to jump through a lot of hoops to, to get an up or down vote, even on things that, you know, were maybe specific to your own district or things that, that really, in the scheme of things, everybody was gonna agree on anyways. These new rules allow lawmakers to hold virtual or remote committee hearings and even approve, they can vote at the committee level to approve a bill and pass it to the floor where lawmakers would have to come to Springfield for a full vote. Those rules are in place this year and next year. How long will it be appropriate for lawmakers to continue holding committee hearings or would you have a concern that that could be used too much? That, would you rather see lawmakers back here in the building in person? Well, I think ideally, we, we always, if it's possible, we need to meet in person because I, I think it's, it's just uh, an issue of accessibility to the public, right? This is a beautiful Capitol building. Uh, we're here at, at the, the seat of government of our state. And so anytime we can have uh, meetings in person, I think it's important. It's important to be there and to be accessible to the public in an area where uh, people can come and talk to us and have input on the things that we're making decisions on. Uh, you know, it always gives me a little heartburn when we're talking about doing things remotely because of the fact that we are somewhat insulating ourselves from the public. But of course, we're in very trying circumstances right now. And I think, you know, I think it's warranted going forward for the next couple of years. Uh, some of the details need worked out yet, and I always get a little bit nervous when we don't have every detail ironed out. But, you know, certainly we're uh, in uh, crazy circumstances with the pandemic going on, and we still need to be able to function. We certainly wonder how many of these uh, habits might stick in the economy to come, but it's interesting to see if the legislature will continue holding virtual hearings or if they will return to Springfield once uh, enough of the vaccine has allocated and distributed and people feel safer going around. Uh, what did you make of Governor Pritzker's decision to allow lawmakers to start to, to move up in line to get that vaccine early? We saw some say that's good for the continuity of government. Others said young, healthy lawmakers shouldn't be cutting in line ahead of people with underlying conditions. What say you? Well, you know, certainly it is a big concern of mine, and it's the number one priority of my office right now to try to help 
people who are most vulnerable, the, the, you know, um, the, the senior populations, the people that really need the vaccine to make sure that they have access to it. What should lawmakers be prioritized in, in jumping ahead in this line? What did you think of that? Well, you know, I think that as long as we can get back to work for the business of the people, I, I do see where, uh, although it may be unpopular because of the fact that uh, a lot of times legislators are younger, such as myself and in pretty good health, uh, it could be seen at a time when we really don't need to have that message out there that, that government is, uh, you know, selfish. Get, yeah, selfish, exactly. But I think the, the important thing is there are a lot of issues that we need to address. Uh, things like uh, the, the failures of IDES and uh, making sure that uh, the people back in my district and the people around the state, the, the small businesses that have been harmed, We've got a lot of work to do to make sure that they get the resources they need. And so anything that can get us back to work, to focusing on those problems, I, I think it's worth it. On, on the vaccine rollout, Vermilion County is one of the lowest in the state. It's, it's in the bottom 10 continually at the number of people, the percentage of people in the county who are getting a vaccine. Other parts of the state, uh, Champaign County, for example, uh, are much more efficient. More people are getting vaccinated. What's the holdup? Well, you know, I think a couple things. Uh, I know locally the, the health department had a lot of uh, trouble with the, uh, the state website and you know, that they used to get people scheduled. That was a little bit of a hiccup that I, I believe they've worked through now. You know, one thing that we face in Vermilion County that's a, a challenge, it's always been a challenge because of the fact that uh, we're in an economically challenged area. We, we just don't have the resources that some other areas have. And so I, I know the people at the health department, they are uh, great people. They are doing everything they can to try to fix uh, this problem. One thing, I, I, my office uh, has been trying to help them and trying to help them get resources. We've been in contact with the health department. Uh, one thing that I think is a very positive development, both Carl and OSF, the two primary healthcare providers, have stepped in and uh, offered the, the health department assistance uh, because the people at the health department really do care a lot and they, they are doing everything they can with the limited resources. So bringing in those external resources and uh, having a, a new approach with some of the venues that they're using that are it's more accessible to uh, some of the people that are uh, the challenged population, people that may have handicaps, uh, I think you're gonna see those numbers turn around shortly in Vermillion County. What did you make of Governor Pritzker's sneak peek of his virtual budget address? He'll deliver it Wednesday. He said no income tax increase, no tax hikes in this new budget. Well, I, I always like to hear uh, no tax increases. You know, that's always a positive. You know, ultimately we need more details. I think that, that's the important thing. You know, uh, he talks about uh, closing $900 million in, in corporate tax loopholes. I'd like to know what the specifics are on that. Uh, you know, the, it's... A lot of times, my, this will be my third budget process. My first two budget processes in the General Assembly uh, have been very vague. Uh, you know, we've been counting on revenue that has never materialized in, in both of the budgets that I've been involved in. And so I hope that we have some more concrete substance in this budget and have some more specifics spelled out. And I would really like to see uh, in the budget the governor focus on some of those resources back to districts like mine that have really been hurt by the pandemic. 
where those small businesses have suffered, where we have high unemployment because of the, the executive order to shut down businesses. Those are things that I really want to hear more about from the governor. Uh, very interesting. Uh, we saw um, House Democrat Ann Williams on our program this week promote the Clean Energy Jobs Act. This is their third try in three years to prop up uh, the energy sectors like wind and solar, these renewable uh, places. How do you view that issue? And uh, there, there's this push toward uh, completely clean energy or completely renewable energy, I believe, which would phase out nuclear as well by 2050. How do you view that issue? Well, I have always been open-minded on the energy issue. And so, you know, as the discussions happen and as we actually see what the, the final bill, uh, how that takes shape, you know, I'm going to stay open-minded about it. I think some of my concerns, I want to make sure that it's a realistic plan. Uh, you know, you talk about complete, completely uh, going to renewables, which uh, that sounds great, but is it practicable? You know, uh, can we actually do that? And then the other thing is I want to make sure that it, it benefits my district. We're not harming ratepayers in my district. The people uh, that have been challenged economically in the last year because of the shutdown. Uh, and then also, you know, uh, I represent a district that's right on the Indiana state line. So a lot of times we're challenged because our neighbors just to the east of us play by a completely different set of economic rules. So I don't want uh, to do anything that's going to uh, make it even harder to cite businesses because they have uh, uh, higher r uh, power rates to pay. Uh, so those are things that are all going to uh, figure into my decision, even though, you know, I, I'm certainly open to, to to clean energy, uh, and it's something that I've I've always been open to, and uh, hopefully I'm part of the discussion as we go forward. Very interesting. I noted your comments there were mostly focused on the bottom line, whether that was to businesses, to ratepayers, to the state. Uh, but w how do you factor in? You know, the, the environment doesn't respect the state line. It, it's sort of all of ours. How do you factor in that collective responsibility to have a cleaner environment uh, as you? weigh the economic costs? Uh, you know, that, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've had the opportunity uh, before I, I served in the State House, I've done, uh, done a lot of traveling overseas uh, to a lot of developing countries. And, you know, one thing that, that I've noticed, no matter where I've traveled, whether it was uh, the time that I spent in Sub-Saharan Africa, I was in China for a while, or, or uh, Western Europe, uh, you know, there was a correlation to clean environment and economic growth. And so I think the more economic growth and the, the healthier the economy can be, that allows us to have more options uh, as far as taking care of the environment. And, and I think, you know, that, that it was true everywhere that, that I've had the opportunity to go and uh, learn and, and see other things. And so, you know, I think that's has to be part of the calculus. We can't do something that's actually going to hurt us because we're going to set us back by doing economic damage to people. Very interesting. A wide-ranging conversation, a lot to follow up on as lawmakers scatter out and work remotely until they ultimately come back here, perhaps in the waning months of the session in uh, April and May in person once again. Good to have you with us. And we're back in just a moment. Before we leave you this week, our capital correction goes to State Senator Darren Bailey. We caught up with him in Effingham on Monday earlier this week. You may recall back in May when he was in the House, the House of Representatives kicked him off the floor of the Bank of Springfield Center because he refused to wear a mask when he was at work with his colleagues in close quarters. 
But even now, these many months later, Senator Bailey still questions whether or not a mask works to stop the spread or slow the spread of the coronavirus. There are businesses that haven't worn the mask and therefore haven't seen the, uh, you know, haven't seen the, the problem of a massive spread. As a matter of fact, I've never been among anything that I've went to that uh, later on found out that, uh, you know, there was a, there was a terrible breakout. So, uh, you know, I respect the mask. But do you believe they work? <laughs> No, I have not seen conclusive evidence uh, to suggest that they work. So the capital correction for Senator Bailey coming from this study from nine eye doctors and medical doctors in Virginia, Canada and Poland who reviewed 198 countries and found generally the places that encouraged mask wearing had lower rates of death. But studies get more specific still. Researchers from the International Journal of Nursing Studies ran 19 randomized controlled clinical studies and found wearing a mask was an effective way to prevent a sick patient from passing COVID-19 to a healthy person. It gets more specific still. This study, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, cited by the Centers for Disease Control, found that people who don't even know they're sick yet can still spread COVID-19. And yes, wearing a mask can help to reduce the spread of their droplets into the air or onto the skin of other people near them. This study from researchers at Duke University went farther still and found that the N95 mask was the safest of all of those options out there. But even if 95% of the people would wear a cloth mask, a less safe option. When they're within six feet of other people out in public, it will still reduce the transmission of COVID-19 by at least 30%. For Capital Connection, I'm Mark Maxwell. Stay connected to the Capitol all week. Follow us on Twitter at CapConnectIL or watch reports from our Capitol team on WCIA3. You can also find us on Facebook or WCIA.com.